Have you ever started a project with high hopes of achieving something spectacular? Maybe you planned to knit a warm woolly jumper or build a piece of furniture or plant a veggie garden or learn a foreign language. And so for a while you worked at it enthusiastically but then you stop and you take stock. You look at what you've achieved and you compare it with what you've hoped for and the gap between them just seems huge and you feel like giving up because they're nothing alike and it's so discouraging. The jumper you're knitting has one arm longer than the other, you've dropped a stitch on every row, there's gaps between the boards of your dining table, the snails have eaten the lettuces, you never got past the first lesson in your foreign language course. Or maybe it's something much more important than any of those things. Perhaps you dreamed of a marriage that didn't turn out like your parents did. But now there's so much unresolved conflict and resentment you barely talk. Or maybe you wanted to raise kids who were independent and well adjusted and who loved Jesus, but they're making one bad decision after another and you wonder how much more you can help them. Or maybe it's a ministry you're involved in. You imagined your Sunday school class would be perfect angels. They'd always behave, learn every memory verse, show their appreciation for all your preparation by giving spellbound attention to your every word. That's our Sunday school, isn't it? But instead your class is more like chimpanzee enclosure at the zoo. Yeah, I've heard. The problem is there's a big gap between expectation and reality. The bigger the gap, the bigger the disappointment. Well, if that's how you're feeling in some aspect of your life, then listen up because God has some encouragement for you. Because that's just the situation the Jews are in here in Haggai chapter 2. Last week we finished chapter 1. The people had resolved that they were going to rebuild the temple. They start work. They begin cleaning the site. They're assembling the building materials. Jump forward one month and God gives Haggai a message for Israel. It doesn't seem as if it's taken too long for the people to realise the huge gap between their expectation and the reality. And so God says in verse 3, Ask everyone, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? It seems like there were a few old-timers, they'd have to be about 80 years old, who remembered Solomon's temple. Back before Babylon had destroyed it, back before they'd all been marched into exile, and they remembered how glorious it was. They remembered the intricate workmanship by those foreign craftsmen, they remembered how everything was covered in gold, that silver and gold were so plentiful, that, that silver was counted as worthless, And they can't help comparing that memory to the plain, unadorned, half-built, sad excuse for a temple that they say slowly beginning to rise from the ashes. That's the reality. They look at the task in front of them, they look at the resources they have to complete it and they feel like giving up. It seems like they thought that things would be different. 
They thought that instead of small things, that they were expecting big and impressive things. And yet those of us who know much about the Bible will see a pattern here that is played out again and again of how God loves to use small, insignificant, unimpressive things and people and how he works in those small things and builds something that is big and powerful. God didn't choose Israel because they were big or powerful or even because they had unrealised potential. God chose them because they were the least likely to develop. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 7, Moses says to the people, the Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore. God chose them when they were little. God chose them because they were little. Later on they make it into the land. God chooses Gideon. When Gideon's hiding from raiders in the bottom of a wine press and an angel says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Some warrior. And then God again and again reduces the size of Gideon's army. You know the story? So that when they won with only 300 soldiers, they wouldn't boast in their own strength, but they would give glory to God. And we see that picture with everybody God chooses. Paul writes to the the Corinthian Christians uh, and they valued human wisdom and power. But God says in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's the way God works. He works with little things. He's always beginning with small, insignificant starts. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, but it grows into the largest of garden plants. And he said the kingdom of God is like yeast, just a tiny amount can influence a whole batch of dough. Jesus himself began small and insignificant, a helpless baby in a stable to a teenage mother. Powerful authorities nailed him beaten and bruised to a shameful cross. It seemed like it seemed like failure. And yet what looked like failure and defeat was actually God's earth-shattering, death-conquering victory. Again and again, God takes little things and grows them into big things. That's the way his kingdom is built. It's built on little things. And so for you, as you seek to build God's kingdom in your life, God is going to do it in little things. God is going to build his work in your life in small acts of obedience, in random acts of kindness that you forget as soon as you do them. He's going to see it in consistent perseverance, tireless patience, tough love. 
He's going to build his kingdom in hidden acts of servanthood for other people that nobody else notices. He'll see it in irrational forgiveness. And so look for God's hand in the little things in your life. Look for the one-off opportunities, the passing conversation on the bus, a teachable moment with your child on the floor of their bedroom, a walk along the beach with your spouse, a conversation with a work colleague in a lift. Look for those little things. Don't worry about the big stuff. Don't worry about people who notice you or praise you or results. Leave all of that to God. Rejoice in the little things God calls you to each day. So what about the Jews? What message does God have for them? Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 2, Haggai. But, you thought everything was small? But, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Be strong and work, for I am with you. In other words, sure, the temple is not impressive. It looks like nothing. Sure, there's a long way to go but be strong and work. Bridge the gap between expectation and reality, one block at a time, one nail at a time, one timber at a time, one day at a time. Be strong and work. And there's a word for each of them. Be strong Zerubbabel. Be a strong leader. Do what's right do what's popular, uh, do what's right rather than what's popular. Don't let the urgent task distract you from the important task. Be a strong leader, lead from the front, not from the back. There's a word for Joshua. Be a strong priest. Teach the people what's true without fear or favour. Represent the people faithfully. Bear their sins, bear their prayers faithfully. And there's a word for the, all of the people. All of you be strong and work. Everybody pitch in and help. Don't leave most of the work to the few. That's the way it often works in churches, isn't it? All of you be strong and work. Decide what you can do and do it serving God Don't worry about whether your neighbour's working or not and how you compare to them. That's between him and God. Be strong and work. And where are they to get their strength from? Well, we saw the same thing last week in chapter 1. Be strong and work for I am with you, says the Lord Almighty. I am with you even though the temple's not built yet. I don't need a temple to dwell with you. I was with you, verse 5, when you came out of Egypt. There wasn't a temple then. I'll strengthen and guide you now. My spirit remains with you. My spirit didn't leave when the temple was destroyed. I'm still here. And so he says, don't fear. Don't fear inadequacy. Don't fear failure. Don't fear opposition. Why? Because I'm with you and I am bigger than all of it. Just in case we doubt whether God is bigger than all of that, 
Did you notice the title God uses for Haggai again and again? It's the Lord Almighty. We hear that word, the Lord Almighty, so much we we almost think, oh, come on, we've got that. Let's just get on with it. The Lord Almighty is sometimes translated the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. This is the commander of the heavenly armies who is strengthening you and who is with you. Why would you be afraid? Why would you worry about a lack of equipment or materials? The Lord Almighty is with you. Well, verse 6, it's building materials. God moves on to next. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I'll once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I'll shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, said the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. Now there's been a bit of disagreement over the, down through history about what these verses are referring to but I think it's fairly clear. Uh, the people are discouraged because their piggy bank is empty. But God says, my piggy bank is full. My piggy bank is the whole world and I'm going to shake it out. The silver and the gold belong to me. The heavens and the earth and the nations I'm going to shake and all of their treasures will come and fill my house and it will be glorious. And he finishes in verse 9, You thought Solomon's temple was special. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. You're discouraged because it looks so insignificant, but I'm going to make it more glorious than the old one. We read in Ezra chapter 6 about how that promise was fulfilled, at least in part. Foreign opponents want to stop the building work, but King Darius finds the original decree from King Cyrus commanding that the gold and silver temple articles are to be returned from his treasury back into the temple. And then on top of it, King Darius commands that the construction costs for the temple are to come from his treasury. The nations are providing the riches, which are God's to begin with, to rebuild the temple. That's what happens. It's it's extraordinary. We shouldn't be surprised though because this is the Lord of hosts. And then the best part of all, far better than silver or gold, the end of verse 9 God promises, and in this place I will grant peace. The temple will become a place where God grants peace. Peace between him and his people. That's a promise we'll return to later. Well, it seems like that encouragement from God gives the people a boost. They keep working for another couple of months. Uh, We jump forward two months and we get Haggai's next prophecy. And it's slightly confusing. It's a a prophecy that uses an object lesson of the, the temple sacrifices that were happening as the building work happened around them. And the way things worked with the sacrifices was that impure things influence pure things. It's not the other way around. Uncleanness is catching, not purity. Consecrated bread and meat doesn't make an unclean person clean, it works the other way. The unclean person defiles 
the food which is clean. It's much harder to clean something than it is to defile it or make it impure. That's the point. And then verse 14, Haggai draws draws the comparison. So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer there is defiled. In other words, just because the people were back in the promised land, that didn't make them clean. And just because they were offering sacrifices which were consecrated, those sacrifices didn't make them pure. And just because they'd started rebuilding the temple, that didn't make them right with God either. God wanted something else. Something else is required to make them pure. And we often fall into the same mistake. We focus on what we're doing rather than the God we're doing it for. We focus on building our kingdom rather than his kingdom. We turn good things into the main things. We get distracted from our creator by created things. We focus on work and ministry and family to the point where they become idols and replace God. We focus on our legacy, our influence, our fame, rather than God's legacy and influence and fame. We focus on being liked and accepted and approved of. We focus on to-do lists and programs and buildings and numbers and budgets. But none of those things make us right with God. We look for our identity and our meaning and our vindication in those things rather than in the God we do them for. Rather than relying on his mercy, his cleansing, his power, his approval, his purposes and his priorities. Yes, God says, rebuild the temple but your work on the temple will not make you pure. Your work can't do it. Verse 15 to 19, hammer that message home. Give careful thought. Just look back on the history pages. The drought, the famine, the poor harvest, it's all evidence that things were not right between us. All of that work, it won't make you right. And even now, verse 19, he says you've planted, the seed is in the ground, but there's no harvest yet. You're still waiting. I've got to do it, he says. You're waiting for me. But here's the good news, the end of verse 19. From this day on, despite your past performance, from this day on, I will bless you. I will bless the land. I'll bless you and... I'm the one that's going to do it. You can't. You can't. And then from verse 20, as we come to the end of the book, we see how it is that God will bless the people. He's not just interested in the temple, he's interested in the palace as well. Because Haggai's final prophecy is a word for Zerubbabel. And what we find is Zerubbabel, the son of David, 
is the key to it all. So verse 21, God promises, tells Zerubbabel that I will shake the heavens and the earth, I will overturn royal thrones, shatter the power of foreign kingdoms, I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. God is promising that Zerubbabel won't just supervise a building project, but will actually conquer nations. And he won't just receive the delegated authority from King Darius, but he will be the signet ring of God himself, the Lord Almighty. Let's just think a little about that phrase, the signet ring. The signet ring of the king was a sign of the king's authority. If you had the king's signet ring, then you could act on behalf of the king. Whatever the signet ring said, that's what the king said. And that's the sort of authority and power that God will give Zerubbabel to speak and act on behalf of God. Back when Jerusalem had been conquered, it was Zerubbabel's grandfather who'd been on the throne, Jehoiachin. He was the king. He was descended from King David himself. And as part of God's judgement, as Jerusalem was being ransacked, he announced in Jeremiah 22 that even though Jehoiachin was the signet ring on God's right hand, God would tear him off his finger and hand him to Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, Jehoiachin would be it. There'd be no more King David, no more sons of David on the throne. The exile was the end. But now the exile's over and God promises Jehoiachin's grandson that he will restore a son of David to the throne. And once again, this son, this king will rule in God's place as his signet ring. Well, they're big promises, aren't they? A glorious new temple where God grants peace. God will bless his people. His spirit will remain among them. He'll restore David's son to the throne and he will act as God himself and God will use this son to shake the nations and shatter kingdoms. They're big promises and that's where the book ends. Now, we started today thinking about the disappointment that comes when reality doesn't measure up to expectation. That's how we started. And so I reckon if I was a Jew reading the book of Haggai, 50 years after, 500, two and a half thousand years after, I reckon I would find it the most disappointing book in the Bible. Because God makes all of these promises but they don't come true. Not one of them. Well, if you look through the pages of history, you you do see that the temple was finished. It lasted a while. It lasted a few hundred years. In fact, King Herod, around 100 BC, through to, you know, 50 or 60, around that time, he spent 40 years renovating and extending it. But it was finally destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, Now there's an Islamic mosque on the site, much to the despair of Jews everywhere. 
What about Zerubbabel? Well, he never amounted to anything more than Darius's governor. What about Zerubbabel shaking the nations? What about God blessing his people with prosperity and peace? Well, it never happened. Israel never achieved independence, let alone victory. She was always governed by foreigners. Persia, then Alexander the Great and and Greece ruled and, and then Rome ruled and Israel was just a feather blown back and forth by the winds of international politics. If you were a Jew and you were reading Haggai, you'd be disappointed if you stopped at Haggai. But if you kept reading past the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament, you'd be disappointed unless you read in Matthew's Gospel about another king who was descended from King David who an angel announced to his father Joseph was to be called Emmanuel, or God with us. And that his name was to be Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And who John the Baptist announces would baptise people with the Holy Spirit. And in Luke's Gospel you'd read about the angel choir who on the night of Jesus' birth sing to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. Jesus answers all of God's promises that come to Haggai. He answers them far better than Haggai could even imagine because it's Jesus who is David's son on the throne of God's kingdom, ruling as God himself. Jesus is God's signet ring. It's Jesus who brings us peace and blessing. It's Jesus who brings the cleansing of forgiven sin to impure people. It's Jesus who's shaking the nations and bringing them and his riches to himself. And so if you are disappointed with life, then Jesus is the answer for you as well. Jesus may not help you knit that jumper or learn that foreign language, but he will give you something far greater. He will pour his spirit into you. He will give you the blessing of peace with God. He'll cleanse you of your sin and give you the power to overcome it There is no disappointment in Jesus because there's no gap between the expectation of what God promises and their fulfilment because Jesus fills that gap. So come to Jesus and be satisfied with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus in whom all your promises find their yes. Amen.